best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hi there, good evening to you on a Thursday. For those of you participating in kicking off the month of May with the mini marathon on Saturday, hope you enjoyed your pasta dinner this evening, as did I. I didn't enjoy yours, I enjoyed mine. Uh, my name is Jay Quarry. Mike Thompson joins me on this program as well. We call it Beyond the Bricks. Sam Rumsa is our producer extraordinaire. And Mike, along with my pasta dinner tonight, I wanted to make sure that I dined and deserted like a champion. And I walked all over 8601 North Keystone looking for the James Tavern, where in 1982 I could have eaten like a champion with one of their 17 strawberry desserts. They did not have any aristocratic <laughs> strawberry for you tonight. <laughs> Unfortunately, as we mentioned yesterday, the strawberry freeze of 83 seemed to do them in, I guess. I, I'll be honest with you, Mike. I have lived in Indianapolis my entire life. And for those that are either visitors of Indianapolis on the regular or grew up here, there are plenty of restaurants of yesteryear that I recall. Uh, Jonathan's Keep, um, Cave and Caverns, Illusions, Poppin' Fresh, Schultz's, the uh, uh, excuse me, the Magic Pan. I mean, there are a million of them. I Lofner's Cafeteria. I don't recall the James Tavern, but that's not to say that I'm sure it was a fine establishment. Um, Jose Legarza might have gone there with any of the 37 dates that he might have lined up in the month of May, right? All the women who called him in probably were hoping that he would go to the James Tavern <laughs> with them. <laughs> it would appear as though, right? Uh, we've got a lot lined up. Mike, that was a lot of fun last night. For those that are just joining us, uh, we appreciate it. And if you have not listened to the program from last night, I realize some people listen to these in podcast form. A lot of fun in taking a look back at the really kind of the burst onto the scene of Jose Garza. Uh, who I did not realize in 1981 and 82, along with his fellow rookie Kevin Kogan that we took a look at, uh, those were two guys that were pretty popular right out of the gate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, unfortunately, a little bit of di divergent careers with with how unpopular Kevin ended up, unfortunately, because of what happened in 1982 with, with the accident that was really out of his control. But Jose Lee was really, really popular right out of the gate and, uh, you know, put up some great results. And, and so did Kevin really out of the gate. But uh, just unfortunately, the stigma of 1982 followed him for a long time. Now, we've got some fun audio to get to tonight, and we might as well get to it fairly quickly we'll begin with this last night mike and i will tee you up for this answer last night it was asked of us and we gave a very brief explanation but i figured we'd go a little more in depth on it tonight we were asked about the origin of back home again in indiana which is one of the great traditions obviously at the indianapolis motor speedway and i think for most it is a tradition that is most linked to Jim Neighbors. For good reason, he sang it more than did any other performer. But that's not to say, especially in the early years, that others did not do the version of Back Home Again in Indiana. Mike, from your conversations with Donald and others, give us kind of the backdrop of Back Home Again. And in addition to that, 
when suddenly people realized that they were in the presence of a new found tradition that they look forward to every year? Really, it started in 1946 when when they came back after the war. And the way I understand it is the fans were in the stands waiting for the race to get ready to start, but there wasn't any specific, uh, you know, entertainment going on at that point. But then uh, James Melton, who was a, a well-known opera singer at the time, uh, went up there with the Purdue band as an accompaniment. And James Melton was was with the, the Met. And so he was pretty well-known at the time. And, and he went up and sa- started singing the song. The, the song is actually called Indiana. We know it as Back Home Again in Indiana. It's kind of taken on that name. But he started singing this song. And the way I understand it, the, a hush came, uh, kind of came over the crowd. And I think it kind of became a tradition and very important to people that day. Because as I understand it, a hush kind of came over the crowd because it really wasn't part of the ceremony at that point, because they were just restarting after the war. And so uh, from then on, it, it started becoming more part of the program. Um, and and it's taken, it took on a, a number of different forms. I mean, on the radio broadcast, as the, as the radio network and it started becoming more of a thing, they actually started you know, stopping what they were doing so you could hear the singer. Um, one of those instances that really stands out for me is in 1955, Dinah Shore is the singer and Sid makes a point to st- stop what he's doing and say, you know, here's Dinah Shore singing. And then Dinah Shore actually, I think she's the only one who does a second verse because at the time there was a popular like sing-along program that, that Mitch Miller was doing. It was, it was sing along with Mitch type situation. And she decided to sing the song a second time, you know, please join me and sing along. And, and so she did a second chorus singing the song. And so Sid, you know, says, Oh, you know, Dinah Shore, now she's leading the, the, the stands and, you know, the crowd in a, in a second chorus of the song. Isn't that lovely? And, you know, and he talked to her a little bit about that when she came up to the booth, she was there as a guest of Chevrolet and, uh, you know, popular star of the time Dinah Shore was. So it became more and more part of the actual program. But in 1946, I think it was just more off the cuff. James Melton was there. He sang the song and it became a tradition. And I would assume, and Mike, you touched on this, but while I don't know that this is documented officially, it would seem a safe assumption that because it was 1946, the meaning, even though the song was Indiana, the meaning of back home again probably met more and maybe stopped people to reflect and listen to the words even more because of, to your point, the fact it was coming right off of the war. So you had a lot of participants who either were, in fact, back home again or who were with someone that they had just welcomed back home. And therefore, in the early years, that right there would have had an immediate resonance, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you're back home again at the track, you know, and right. they probably all had memories of being there from prior to the war. And, and, you know, obviously there, were, you know, we'll talk about later on a little bit more about this as well, but there was a lot of people who didn't believe the track was coming back after the war. Um, and I know we're going to talk about that more later in the show, but there was, there was, the, that was the thought that the track really wasn't going to come back after the war. And so coming back. And I think, just the idea of back home again in Indiana and, and, and we're, we're all back together. I can imagine that that probably was a poignant moment when all of a sudden that started, you know, being sung over the public address 
uh, in the stands in 1946. And as you had mentioned, we will talk about how the track and one of the key figures that lifted the track from its Depression era, pardon the pun, coming off of its own if you will, era of that coming off of the years in the war where the weeds are growing through it, and then suddenly two men kind of combine forces to bring it to what we know today. We'll get into that and what catapulted along with that the Indianapolis 500 and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the radio broadcasts of it. But to begin with back home again in Indiana, as Mike had mentioned, the first year it was performed was James Melton in 1946. As Mike had mentioned, many people that were there might have watched the race, for example, back in 1925 when Peter DePaulo was the winner of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. He won the race 20 years before that, the 13th running, as a matter of fact. If you combine 25 and 1946, it is probably by coincidence, but nonetheless, that would take you to 71. And in 1971, Peter DePaulo sang Back Home Again in Indiana. He probably was a slightly better driver, but this is how it sounded. We will have uh, further music coming up, and uh, not to keep you in suspense too much longer, we'll have Back Home Again in Indiana, and uh, it will be sung by Pete DiPaolo, as over 10,000 very colored balloons will soar skyward in our brilliant Hoosier sky this morning, released from a giant tent where they've been stored overnight. The Purdue Band will play back home again, and the singing voice will be that of the 1925 Indianapolis 500 winner, Pete DiPaolo, and we're very anxious to hear from, from Pete. Pete says he's been practicing this song, Len, since uh, he won the race that he used to sing it as he rode around the racetrack. I think he tries it every morning for breakfast. He does, and it's been a, a lifetime ambition, he says, to sing back home in Indiana. He'll be the first driver to ever do so. Let's listen to it now. doing a gallant job singing back home again in Indiana and a standing ovation as the 10,000 balloons go skyward and now down to Luke Walton. You could hear Tom Carnegie, of course, on that call as well. Once they woke everybody up, then Al Unser went on to win the Indianapolis 500 in 1971. Obviously, Pete DiPaolo, a fabulous champion of the Speedway. I'm being flippant, of course. One of the great legends of the Speedway, Peter DiPaolo, 
passed away nine years after that in 1980. Six months after that, in the 1981 Indianapolis 500, the tradition, even though Jim Neighbors had first sang back home again in Indiana in 1972, they then went with a couple of other entertainers. Of course, Jim Neighbors, a lot of people don't realize, wasn't consecutive all the way through the end. There were others that were mixed in, including a man from Linton, Indiana, who was an entertainer of his era, Phil Harris, sang back home again in 1981. That new mown hay sends out its fragrance from those fields and fields and fields I used to roam when I dream about that moonlight on the Wabash. Then I long for my Indiana Long for my Indiana, love my Indiana home. Hoosier-born Phil Harris. Again, Tom Carnegie on the public address there as Phil Harris, again, born in Linton, Indiana. But, Mike, he considered himself a Southerner because he was an entertainer primarily based in Nashville. And you could kind of sense that there, right? I mean, a little bit more of a, a Southern acapella feel for him. Definitely. But, but he was very proud of his Linton roots. He gave all of his, uh, I guess the way I understand it is he gave all of his possessions later on to um, a, a, either a museum or some sort of library in Linton. And uh, so he was very proud of being from Linton, but um, a little bit more of a kind of a spoken word version there. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it, you know, and I think it goes to show then eventually, of course, and, and I, I think probably even prior to that, but it was after that really when the Purdue University marching band became as much a fixture with it as neighbors. And then suddenly it became, Mike, I think, a song that we were used to hearing in the same fashion each and every year. Yeah, and one of the things we, we touched on last night that we really didn't get to talk about enough is – the the story about 1972 with Jim Neighbors. Jim Neighbors told the story for years, uh, even to Donald and to you know the reporters and things like that. That he was asked on the morning of the race to quote sing the song unquote, and that he was expecting that he was going to sing the national anthem, and at the last second he found out that that's not what he was going to sing and that he had to kind of scrawl down the, the lyrics to back home again in Indiana and sing it. Basically he, he kind of scrawled it down on a piece of paper at the last second. There may be elements of that that are true uh, that he didn't know the, that he was going to sing it at the last, until the last second. But that being said, um, our friend, Steve Shunk, who's one of the, uh, the great public relations folks, in racing handles the Borg Warner account unearthed a, uh, a newspaper clipping uh, a few weeks ago. And that newspaper clipping actually says in it prior to the race, Jim neighbors will be singing back home again in Indiana and talks about, you know, Hey, he'll be in the parade and he's going to sing the song. So 
that gives the impression that Jim Neighbors was, you know, knew all along he was going to sing the song. So I actually sent that to Donald, and Donald was very excited about it because he said, "Hey, this, this is another one of those things that it kind of busts one of the myths." You know, the myth is that that Jim Neighbors didn't know he was going to sing the song, and this clearly says he he did know that. It's interesting because so many things about the Speedway, um, you know, our lore and radio was such, and I mean, I mean that in a good way. Um, the magic of radio in the early years of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, for many people to go in 1946 and 1971 and 1981, the years that we're talking about, their knowledge, their understanding, their picture, their vision of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway or the Indianapolis 500, like Donald Davidson's, primarily would have been through the own theater of their own mind from listening to it on the radio. And that existed in terms of the radio narration of the Indianapolis 500 prior to Sid Collins. Um, Sid Collins, of course, in 1952, took it to the point where it is today in terms of a live broadcast with a radio network. But that is not to say that there were not radio words, radio capturing of the Indianapolis 500 and reporting on what was taking place at 16th and Georgetown. For example... Here is an example of what, Mike, I believe you believe is the oldest audio that exists of an Indianapolis 500-mile race from 1939, correct? Correct. This is what we believe is the oldest clip that still exists of an, of an Indianapolis 500 from 1939 NBC. Okay, this is NBC Radio 1939. There goes Jimmy Snyder passing up some more cars. 51, Tony Wilman, he just lapped him, and he's about to lap some more. He's had to cut low on that... Uh, Turned down there, he almost uh, went down onto the dirt apron. He was going so fast and about to lap another car. However, uh, he didn't have to go down onto the dirt at all. Here is Bob Swanson really bearing down and passing up Ted Horn. Number 15 is Rex Bays. Boy, the pace is hot and furious right at this point. Billy DeVore, who threw that part of his exhaust pipe a while ago, is sailing around there. Apparently, he's not coming in. The technicians committee considers that that is no hazard to himself nor to the other drivers, and though he has not been on... Floyd Roberts! Floyd Roberts, followed by George Bailey in that car I talked so much about a while ago. Here's Ira Hall again, taking it very leisurely, riding very comfortably. He seems to be enjoying his ride thoroughly. Bob Hanson driving another one of Joel Thorne's cars. George Connor. Babe Sapp. Babe Sapp is driving now his 11th or 12th race, and he never has won the race. As a matter of fact, he has finished the race very few times, not due to any lack of skill on his part, but always due to tough luck and mechanical failure. Babe maintains that if he goes out this time and takes it easy, he is going to win this race. So we shall see what we shall see. We certainly wish Babe the best in everything. He's a fine, fine boy. Ted Horn. There goes Rex Mays bearing down. Now I'm going to get uh, Jimmy Snyder now to try to give you the positions again. They come around. There goes Chris Brazier driving a beautiful, beautiful car. Clip Brazier, by the way, would finish third in that race. Babe Stapp did exactly what he said he wanted to do in his Alfa Romeo. He finished all 200 laps, but it didn't result in a win. He finished in fifth. Rex Mays, 16th. Ted Horn, who you heard mentioned, finished in the fourth position. And the winner of that race in 1939 was Wilbur Shaw. 
And Wilbur Shaw, who we will talk about upcoming, became a very, very important figure at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway beyond his driving career. But in sticking with the radio broadcast, the theater of the mind, the legends that were named, that were made via the narration that went across the airwaves where people listened all around the country and all around the world, really, to what was going on with the Indianapolis 500. Uh, Gene Kelly, not the dancer, but rather the old sports director at WIBC Radio in Indianapolis in 1947, was one of those that had his own way of illustrating the stars of the race. Here he is talking about the lineup in 1947. 30 cars, 10 rows of three. Briefly, they line up from the inside out. We look down on the west straightaway of the home stretch of this track. Here they are. Number one, Ted Horn, Patterson, New Jersey. Number 18, Cliff Legere, Toledo, Ohio. This is his 15th race. Number 27, the only previous winner in this race, Maury Rose of Chicago, Illinois, and South Bend, Indiana. Second row, number 54, Herb Ottinger of Detroit, Michigan. Number 24, Shorty Catlin of Indianapolis, and the only 16-cylinder car in the race. Number 25, the erstwhile blacksmith of Detroit, Michigan, Russ Snowberger. Third row, number 58, Les Anderson of Portland, Oregon, and the Kennedy Tank Special. Number 16, Bill Holland making his first start here. Dirt track champion, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Number 47, billiard ball like Ken Fowler of Dayton, Ohio. Fourth row, number seven, Jimmy Jackson, last year's second place winner. Number 53, a newcomer, Milt Fankhauser of Louisville, Kentucky. Number 28, an old-timer, Roland Free, who raced here 17 years ago, home in Indianapolis. Fifth row, number 14, the veteran George Connor, Los Angeles, California. Number 33, Walt Brown, representing the East from Massapeka, New York. Number 31, the stout Frank Wern in a small four-cylinder car. He's from Pasadena, California. The sixth row, number 52, Hal Robeson, brother of the late George who won last year's classic. Hal from Bell or Huntington Park, California. Number 59, the man who calls himself the only serve in automobile racing, Pete Rumsevich of Gary, Indiana. Number 46, Duke Nalen of Los Angeles, California. He'll be driving the Mercedes-Benz. Seventh row, number 66, the veteran Al Miller, Detroit, Michigan. Number nine, heavy-footed Rex Mays of Long Beach, California. Number 15, Paul Russo of Kenosha, Wisconsin. One of the two who crashed last year back again in perfect health. Eighth row, number eight, Joey Chitwood, the Cherokee from Reading, Pennsylvania. 41, Freddie Agabation of Albany, California. 44, good-hearted Charlie Van Acker of South Bend, Indiana. Ninth row, 29, Tony Bettenhausen, Tinley Park, Illinois. 43, Henry Banks, Linwood, California. 10, Duke Dinsmore, Dayton, Ohio. 10th row, which was just completed by 7 o'clock last night. Number 34, Cy Marshall, Jacksonville, Florida. Number 3, Emil Andres, Chicago, Illinois. And finally, completing the 10th row, number 38, Mel Hansen, the mustachioed whiz of Indianapolis. 30 cars, raring to go. Now, Mike just put his razor down. He was going to be the mustachioed whiz of Ohio, but unfortunately, Mike, you decided to be clean-shaven. But uh, 30 of them, not 33, back in the race in 1947 that was won by Maury Rose. That's correct. But what I was thinking is perhaps is it possible you have some pull at the radio network and i was thinking maybe we could get mark james to announce some of the drivers this way this year perhaps we could have billiard ball like felix rosenquist <laughs> how about who or, would be heavy-footed or, juan montoya or or the mustachioed whiz alexander rossi of california what do you think that's right that'll go over well right that you know that when you listen to and you understand i think more than anything else it was so ingrained in those announcers at that time 
to give as much detail as possible because that's they were truly painting a picture for people who may never see what it was that they were talking about. And so it allowed you to see it was entirely possible that those drivers he was describing that the people listening never actually saw photo or video of those men, right? And so you are painting the ultimate picture. A lot of people get on me, Mike, if I may say, you know, I mean, not, not to put myself in it, but not get on me, but I get ribbed every once in a while. When I make a call of the race, maybe there's a little peek behind the curtain, but usually at least once throughout the course of the Indianapolis 500-mile race when I'm on the radio calling it, I incorporate the weather into the call, and I will try to illustrate three things, whether the sun is out or it's cloudy, whether or not the sky is blue or overcast, and if there are any clouds in the sky, what they look like. And the only reason I do it, I guess maybe to entertain myself, but Mike, I truly wonder if... There's the possibility that 75 years from now, the Jake Quarry and the Mike Thompson of Indianapolis Radio will be listening to or talking about the 2010 Indianapolis 500 or the 2022 Indianapolis 500. And if at any point one of them says, I wonder what the weather was like back then. That's the, that's the one reason I do it. It's like my one little tip of the cap to yesteryear. And listening to those guys, I realize... I got a lot more brushes I need to grab, right? Because those guys painted a, a heck of a lot better than than we do today, probably, in a well, different fashion. Yeah. Well, yeah, and if if I mean, what I also want to know is Charlie Van Acker was listed as good-hearted, but that, does that mean the other twenty-nine guys aren't? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, what right. Rex Mays was a Rex Mays was a pretty nice guy. I mean, <laughs> that's right. He, he didn't. You Start, need to get good hearted. Starting, starting in the fifth position, it's Shorty Cutthroat Canton. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. They, I they mean, didn't go with that, right? No. So, um, but yeah, I mean, if if you could work, if you could work billiard ball like Felix Rosenquist or <laughs> or something into the show, I'll try to do that. I'll do the best I can. Uh, when we come back, the Indianapolis 500 catapults into a different stratosphere, and it does so really because of the work behind the scenes of one man and the work over the radio airwaves of another. We'll explain what we're talking about when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. Hi, this is Big John Gillis with great news for all fun-loving, hungry Southsiders. DJ's Packing House is now open seven days a week in Greenwood's Chippenfield Shops, Madison and County Line. DJ's Packing House, the one stop for you for fine food and good times. DJ's Packing House, seafood steaks, prime rib, chicken. DJ's Packing House, homemade lunch and dinner specials every day. DJ's Packing House, whatever your mood, a quiet meal in the dining room, dining with live weekend entertainment in the club room, or a big brew in the lounge, in front of the big screen TV, or over your favorite video game. DJ's Packing House, open seven days a week at the corner of Madison and County Line in Greenwood. Nothing on the south side is quite like DJ's. For an up-to-the-minute list of special food and special events, read DJ's ad in the Perry Weekly. For a special time, anytime, make one stop at DJ's Packing House, Chippenfield Shop, Madison and County Line, Greenwood. Thanks. I wish I could remember the name of that place. Big John Gillis stepping out of the Whirly Bird to do an ad for WIBC Radio and, of course, their legendary coverage of the Indianapolis 500. 
Uh, John, a legend, not only in radio, but Indianapolis and one of the truly colorful personalities throughout radio in Indianapolis. Good evening to you, Jake Quarry, along with Mike Thompson. This is Beyond the Bricks. Uh, Mike, the reality is that when he did that ad, Big John Gillis said DJ's Packing House repeatedly so that the customer obviously would remember what he was talking about. But it turns out that when they used to have to run those spots back in the day, as the kids say, sometimes it was up to the person who was running the production board back in the radio station to know exactly when commercials were supposed to run. And so they came up with an idea that became something that we still hear to this day. That's correct. That's because we have folks like Sam who work the overnight shift and you have to sometimes tell them to roll the brakes, right? That's correct. <laughs> roll break. Right? Um, Gotta make sure I'm out of sleep. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. But uh, yeah, what happened is they uh, we're going to let Donald Davidson tell the story because he's going to tell it a heck of a lot better than I will tell it. But what I do need to set up a little bit is for years, it was believed that the famous tagline that he is going to discuss that we know to still to still know to this day uh, was first said in 1955. But actually, I found uh, a copy of a 1954 broadcast for the first time. And Donald and I listened to it together and we found that it was first said in 1954. And it was, we did an interview right after listening to that and finding that out for the first time. And, and Donald is still a little bit bemused in, in this clip about the fact that we've just disproven something that he had thought for a number of years, but okay, so I'll let Donald, I'll let Donald explain what we're talking about. Here we go. That was quite a revelation, uh, a little hard to unthink that one, but the story is that after 1953, which was the first uh, all-day flag-to-flag coverage, uh, for a while it was reported 1952, which was the first year for the network that they did that, well, they didn't. Uh, they did the old uh, mutual format, which was the beginning, the end, and then reports uh, during it. So, 53, they did the full broadcast. And uh, so, they, uh, WIBC was the flagship station. And so, they sought input from the people that were carrying it. Uh, you know, what, what, uh, what suggestions do you have? Do you like it or would you change it in any way? And then apparently the number one request was, could there be a standard out cue? Because, you know, our man's in uh, Omaha, Nebraska or, or, you know, Casper, Wyoming or something at a radio station. It's Memorial Day. And he maybe doesn't really know anything about racing, and he's sitting there waiting for a break. And and uh, if there's like a, a key phrase, he'll know to oh stop reading the paper. It's time to hit the button. So anyway, then um, Richard Fairbanks, Mr. Fairbanks owned WIBC, and apparently he came in to uh, the jocks and and the um, sales staff and said, all right, here's your mission. Get come up with a phrase. So. I think it's fair to say that Sid Collins popularized it, but apparently it was a lady named Miss Alice Bugner, I think, or Bugna was her maiden name. And uh, I, I had her at 22, but if it's the year before, then she's 21. And uh, she was a, a sort of like a girl Friday in the sales department, and she wrote copy. And apparently she came back one day and said... Uh, how about 
stay tuned to the greatest spectacle in racing. And Sid evidently said, my word, I think you've got something there. So they did it. And um, so, you know, all these years we thought it was 55 and just recently it came out it was 54. And so every every time that he said, stay tuned to the greatest spectacle in racing, uh, you know, board up in Bangor, Maine or, or uh, uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, <laughs> knew uh, hit the, it was time for the spots. So whether it was by design the very first time or whether it just came out the first time and then later was used, here is that first time that Sid Collins had used the phrase. McGrath, number two, nine, Ryan is second. Chuck Stevenson, eighth, number one, Triple A National Driving Champion, Sammy Hanks, ninth, number seven, Don Freeland. Those are the nine first cars we spotted here on the fourth lap of this 200 lap drive. Now, fans, stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. So there it is from Sid Collins, and by that time, the Indianapolis 500 and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway were entering their zenith in terms of breaking through and becoming part of the American culture. Now, a lot of that is attributed, of course, not only to Sid Collins and his radio broadcast, but also to Wilbur Shaw, who had himself been a driver, of course, won the Indianapolis 500. And then, just after the Second World War, he had been hired to do some testing and he saw the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in its dilapidation and, quite frankly, was brokenhearted. And so he decided, you know what, somehow this needs to be brought back because he had heard from Eddie Rickenbacker and others that the plan was that ultimately it would be sold and turned into a housing development, among other things that were possible. And so... Wilbur Shaw was kind of taken upon himself, but also given the task to try to find somebody who would buy the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And most that he talked to that were interested in the purchase for the amount of $750,000 roundabout in 1946 had told him that if they purchased it, they would have continued to use it, of course, for a facility for automobiles, but probably for their own personal use and not for that of a public international sweepstakes 500-mile race. So we found a businessman in Terre Haute, Indiana, named Tony Holman, who said, you know what, I'll not only buy the track, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but I will let you run it, and we'll turn it into the facility of the greatest sporting event in the world. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that certainly seemed to be the spirit. And that's exactly what the two of them did. And so Wilbur Shaw became, to an extent, the face of the Speedway in working along with Tony Holman to make sure that everyone knew that it was the place for the biggest race. And, of course, it was Sid Collins whose job it was to vocalize for those that weren't there that what he was seeing and describing was the greatest sporting event in the world. Occasionally, the two of them would get together, as a matter of fact, to preview exactly what was going to unfold or to recap what had unfolded before them. This is how it sounded when the two of them talked in 1952. Wilbur Shaw first came to the track in 1921, but he couldn't qualify his car. 
Then in 1931, he drove a Duesenberg into contention for the lead when he crashed over the wall and into the telephone wires outside the truck. Mr. Shaw picked himself up, counted the bones, and with none broken, made his way back to the pits to climb into a different car and go on to finish sixth. In 1936, he won the 500, repeated again in 1939 and 1940. He was leading the race in 1941 to make it three in a row when a wheel collapsed. A wonderful gentleman, the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Good evening, Wilbur. Good evening, Sid, and thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. It's not as much as you deserve, I assure you. How will you feel tomorrow on the uh, starting of the pace lap of the 36th annual 500-mile classic? Well, just like an old fire horse when the bell rings, I'll want to go and, and want to stay going. Wilbur, what do you think the problems will be tomorrow for the press and the radio and the racing fans across the land to figure? Uh, for one, I know, will it be the Novi's? Will it be the rookies? What else? Well, actually, uh, Sid, uh, each year I have a very trite answer for who's going to win, and I just, just uh, end up by saying, actually, that's why we're having the race. But uh, almost anyone, I say almost, I mean really, any one of the 33 cars or drivers can win that automobile race. And uh, as you know, there's no such thing as, as a sure thing in automobile racing, and especially not in the 500-mile race. One of the most important things to uh, folks who go to any sporting event, especially this one-day, greatest single-day event in the world, Wilbur Shaw, is the weather. What's the outlook for tomorrow? Well, the weatherman promises us uh, bluebird skies tomorrow all day and showers quite late in the day. I don't know how you do it to hold back those showers every well, time. Well, it, uh, it just must mean that we're living right, and uh, uh, we're, we're certainly grateful. I honestly believe that God must be a race fan. Wilbur, if you're listening right now, give us dry weather from up there for another three and a half weeks, could you? We'll be back with more from Beyond the Bricks. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Sam Rumsa back with you on Beyond the Bricks. Thank you for listening tonight. We've been talking about a number of different things, but most recently that of Wilbur Shaw, the three-time winner. He took the checkered flag in 37, 39, and 40 before becoming the track president in 1946, which means in that capacity, of course, he would greet, congratulate the winners of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Unfortunately and tragically, Wilbur Shaw was fatally injured in an airplane crash near Decatur, Indiana, on October 30th of 1954. But some five months or so just prior to that, he met with the winner of the Indianapolis 500, another man who unfortunately would be fatally injured to end his life not long after. But here is Wilbur Shaw with Bill Vukovic. And Bill is climbing back up on the car. Bill, how was the heat this year compared with last? Well, it wasn't hot this year. It was pretty cool all the way through. Bill, that was quite a struggle getting up there from way back in the pack, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard road to hold from back there, I'll guarantee you. When did you feel you had that race won? Oh, I didn't know. We just figured to keep running and see what happens. Well, you really did it, Bill, Bill Vukovic. Congratulations. You're the third man in history to win this 500-mile race two times in succession. And here's the first man to do it, Wilbur Shaw. Wilbur, what did you think? wonderful job again. You certainly are a champion of the first one. Wilbur, what did you think of this automobile? The most beautiful race we've ever had, the most beautiful start. From start to finish, it's been wonderful. And even the Wilbur Shaw weather held up. Perfectly wonderful. I'm more certain every day that God is a 500-mile race fan. Thank you very much, Wilbur Shaw. 
So that's Charlie Brockman and Bill Vukovic and Wilbur Shaw. And the thing I'm really fascinated by that clip, you hear Bill Vukovic talk about how it's not that hot and it wasn't that hot that year, but that's also the year of the famous photograph. If you're familiar with the photograph of Bill Vukovic sitting on the bench in his garage with his wife, looking completely exhausted and spent, that's 1954. And that's the year he's he's referring to where he says, hey, it wasn't that bad. That's also the same year that photograph, that famous photograph that you see in the, uh, you know, so many different places, uh, Bill Vukovic, that, that's when that photograph was taken. So an interesting answer to the Charlie Brockman question. And whoever would have guessed that would be the final 500, unfortunately, for both Wilbur Shaw and Bill Vukovic. As I mentioned, Wilbur Shaw was killed in an airplane crash on October 30th of 1954, one day before his 52nd birthday. Later, the man that we heard from earlier talking to him, Sid Collins, paid tribute to Wilbur Shaw. The 175,000 to 200,000 folks here at the Speedway getting set for the start of this greatest speed classic in the world. Now stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. Call gentlemen, start your engines. The title of the wonderful autobiography of Wilbur Shaw, whom we miss so much today, has just been given to these 33 racers. This is the first race since 1927 in which Wilbur Shaw is not here with us. Three-time winner of the 500-mile race and president of the Speedway. When the skies were clear and blue here, a little wind and perfect for racing, it was known in Indiana as Wilbur weather, and we almost have it again today. Wind northwesterly about 15 to 20 miles an hour, occasional gust to 25, and the temperature around 56 degrees. Wilbur Shaw's weather at the track, Wilbur Shaw conquered three times and reigned over as its president. And we dedicate our broadcast today for four and a half hours to our friend and your friend, Wilbur Shaw. Mike, it truly is magical to be able to hear the voices of those that we have read and known so much about and those that were so responsible, quite frankly, in allowing us to be able to do this each and every night. Absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't be here without Wilbur Shaw. If you wanted to name one of the most important figures in the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, both as a driver, obviously, and as the president of the Speedway, a man who's helped save the Speedway, uh, Wilbur Shaw, one of the most important figures in the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, without question. Wilbur Shaw was born in Shelbyville, as we had mentioned. And, of course, you can only imagine what he must have thought when he saw the the weeds coming through as he went out to test at a place where he had won and and thought to himself, I can't imagine that the greatness that is this facility would ultimately become something, anything other than that. And fortunately, he had that vision and was able to reach out and find Tony Holman. Ultimately, of course, as we talked about, the race became the greatest race in the world. And so, therefore, we're going to leave you tonight with the way it sounded for the sign-off in 1950. Here is the way it sounded. So that's the story of the Indianapolis race today. And before we sign off, I'd like to say thanks a lot to the Perfect Circle Piston Ring people who brought this broadcast and report of the Indianapolis Classic to you today. Thanks also to all the gentlemen of WIBC, our mutual station here in Indianapolis, Indiana, who did an excellent job of getting everything all set for us. <laughs> well, that's all, folks. The sudden finish of the year's uh, a great racing event here at the Indianapolis Speedway. These broadcasts of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, which was abbreviated to 345 miles today by rain, these broadcasts have been presented in honor of the man who services and repairs your car, that expert, dependable mechanic, your doctor of motors. And the story of today's race has been brought to you by the makers and distributors of Perfect Circles, the most honored name in piston rings. 
Now, this is Bill Slater speaking to you finally from Indianapolis, reminding you that Johnny Parsons was the winner in, a, in an abbreviated 345-mile race. Bill Slater telling you goodbye from Indianapolis. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.